Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. we're still standing, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time now that we've had to come and to sing and worship you and focus on you. And this morning, Lord, as we turn next to your word, I pray that you would be at work amongst us, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would speak to us through Mark today that we might know you better, that we might follow you more closely, that we would become even more your people. And I ask this now in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. Please be seated. So as you know, we're uh, going through the book of Mark. And um, this morning... We are going to start in chapter 3, verse 7, and we're going to try and get through to chapter 4, verse 20, and along the way, we're also going to try and accomplish communion, and so can I just say buckle up? We're going to have to fly. As we're getting into the book of Mark, and as we come to this section today, remember that momentum is building here. Things are getting more and more big more and more exciting, more and more dynamic as we go. Um, crowds are coming out in bigger numbers than they have been before. But by now, the, the crowds that are following Jesus, even in this short little period, have dwarfed those that have been following John the Baptist. They're coming from more and more places, from further and further away. So note verse 8. It says in verse 8, When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him, that's to Jesus, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Idumea, and the region across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The crowds following Jesus are coming from further and further away because they're hearing more and more about what's going on, and it's garnering a bigger and bigger excitement, more enthusiasm, more interest. Think about that for a second. Idumea is well over 100 miles away from where Jesus is at this point. Probably closer to between 120 and 125 miles. What what would prompt you to walk 120 miles to see what was up? For me, it would have to be pretty significant. There would have to be something that really had piqued my interest in order to motivate me to walk 120 miles. But that's what's going on. People are coming from further and further away. Crowds are getting bigger. And what's more, it's broken out of even the cultural territory, if you will. It's gone beyond just the Jewish regions, but it's getting now into Gentile regions, and they're coming, which is interesting because that's crossing over. This 
this whole deal would be of no interest really to Gentiles. Like, that's a Jewish thing. That has nothing to do with me. That's all them over there. But no, at this point, even the Gentiles are interest, interested. Their interest has been piqued and they're coming out. So recognize the significance that's building here as Mark's outlining this story. Then we come to verses 13 to 19. And Mark talks to us about Jesus choosing his 12 disciples. Now, lots could be said here, and I want to focus on just a few things this morning for the sake of time. And we're going to look specifically at verses 14 and 15. There it says, He, Jesus, appointed 12 that they might be with him and that, they might, that, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, don't miss here in this, just this little section, as Jesus names these 12 guys, don't miss here Jesus' intentions for his disciples. I said a couple of weeks ago that as we come to this book of Mark, to be paying attention to what it is to be a disciple. As Mark outlines that for us, and as he kind of puts skin on the idea, if you will, he gives us some great insight into what it means to follow Jesus throughout his book. And here, there's great depth and insight to be sure. Christ outlines four things as he calls his 12 about his intentions for them. First of all, his intention is for them to be with him. To be with Jesus. That's the first thing. Secondly, he intends to send them out. That he has a plan for them. He intends for them to preach. He's going to be giving them something to say as they go out. And number four, he intends for them to drive out demons. Now, if you're like me, as we come to this passage, one of the first things that I do is that I draw a distinction. Well, Jesus is calling his disciples. The twelve. They are way different than I am. That, that's the twelve. They're on a different level. And for some of us this morning, we might even be, go be, beyond that. We might be even taking it to another level. We're looking at it and we're saying, well, these aren't just the disciples. These 12 are the apostles. These are, like, these are the guys. So there's the apostles and then there's the disciples. And, well, and then somewhere on a level way below that comes me. But we need to understand something this morning because Mark is not communicating here for a distinction. He's not writing for us to understand a difference between them and ourselves. In fact, I understand from people smarter than I am that Mark only uses the term for apostle once in his gospel. And that comes in chapter 6. And that rather, over 40 times... He talks about disciples in general. He uses the term disciple. And then along with that, he throws in some other terms for followers of Christ. Those that follow Christ. Those that are following Jesus. And so this morning as we come to this, we need to understand 
that Mark sees us and the disciples in the same way. Followers of Jesus don't have a distinction. They do the same things. And so we need to come to this little section here and not just breeze over it, but understand what Mark is telling us about, what he's speaking into our lives, what he wants us to know and to appropriate for ourselves today. Jesus' intentions for his disciples are his intentions for you and I too. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we are to be with him, which is to say that we need to carve out in our day time. We need to prioritize time to be with God. That we need to spend time praying. That we need to spend time in the word. We need to be with Jesus first. As a follower of Jesus, we have to prioritize him enough to spend time with him. Secondly, we need to understand this morning that we are to be on a mission for him. That he is sending us out on a mission. That he has something for us to do. As sure as I am standing here in front of you today, God has a plan for you. He has a plan to send you out into the world that he's placed you in. He has a plan for the way that he has wired you up. He has a plan for the place that you ha- where he has placed you. He has a plan for the people around you that only you can touch. And he's sending you out today with a plan that's just for you. As followers of Christ, we understand too, we need to understand that as we go out, that we have to preach. Which isn't to say that we have to get up here on the platform. But rather that we have to testify to who God is in our lives. That we have to share with a world around us about the good news, the salvation of Jesus Christ, the gospel. That we have to let them know who God is and what he's done and how that influences and impacts them, how it's relevant to everyone. We have to testify to God. And lastly, as followers of Jesus, we are to drive out demons. Now, we get freaked out, don't we? Uh, let me say I do. When we start talking about casting out demons and things like that, I start to get a little bit apprehensive. And I understand that. that. That's not something that we're faced with regularly. It's not commonplace for us. But at this time, it was something that was a significant factor. As in, we know that, not just from Scripture, not from just Mark writing to us here, but in secular literature that, as well. They acknowledge that these were issues that were going on. And so I guess and maybe in that sense, it's not surprising then that God would be a part of that, right? I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. 
So the, for us this morning, though, as we come to this idea of being sent out to drive out demons, we need to understand that on a broader context today. We need to understand that when it comes to driving out demons, we're being called, in fact, to stand against evil. To stand up to evil in our world. That may, in fact, at some point, call for us to cast out a demon. I've never had to do that. But maybe in the course of our lives, we'll be called upon to do that. But it means for sure that we will stand against the evil that we encounter in this world. Which is to say that we will stand up against the oppression of the poor. Because we do face that. We do encounter that in our lives. We can point to that. We see that happen. And we need to stand up against that evil on behalf of Christ. We need to stand up against the exploitation of the defenseless. We see that as well in our world. That we can't just idly walk by. Living and let living. But that we have to speak into that. That we have to take a stand. We have to take a stand against the abuse of power and means. Those that have privilege and that use it inappropriately to exploit things and people and circumstances in our world unfairly, unjustly. We have to stand against the advancement of immorality. Heaven only knows we see that happening around us day by day by day by day. But we can't just let it go on. We have to do something. We have to stand up. We have to stand up against the abandonment of ethics. And we have to stand up against the erosion of truth in our world. How do we do that? Where do we do that? Well, we do that wherever we find it as God sends us out, which is to say that we do it at home, we do it at work. We do it at school. We do it in our communities. We do it in our country and beyond as God gives us the ability and the burden on our hearts, as he makes us aware, as he points it out for us. That's what it's like to be a disciple. That's what we're called upon to do as followers of Jesus Mark lays it out for us. We need to understand this morning. But moving on. Verses 20 to 35. Here again, we're reminded that a big crowd is assembled to the point where it's even impacted, it's affected them being able to eat. So we know categorically right now off the hop that this is not a Baptist gathering. If it was a Baptist gathering... There would be plenty of time and preparation for food. We wouldn't have anything to worry about there. Right? Yeah. I'm seeing some heads nodding. Amen. I didn't get an amen. Anyways, that's all right. No pressure today after all that Julie said. Hokey dine, huh? Somehow got to deliver. Okay. All right, all right, all right. I'm getting, I'm getting off track. We don't have a lot of time. Did I mention that? Okay. We could, we could spend a whole bunch of time on this passage. We could go literally for hours on it, I'm sure. 
Uh, but this morning, I just want to po- focus on, on a few aspects. Once again, note that the religious leaders have set out to cause an issue with Jesus. Now, we've been seeing a progression here, too. Just as the crowds are gathering, just as everything is starting to build and it's starting to grow, right? The, the religious ob- objection and interference is escalating as well. Ryan pointed out last week that at this point, though, the, the religious officials, they, haven't even, they don't even question whether or not Jesus can do what he's going to do. Like, I mean, if he says he's going to do a miracle, I'm sure that they're convinced that's going to happen. If he's going to cast out a demon, yep, there's no doubt in their minds that that is going to happen. He has demonstrated that. He's proven himself on that level. But you can see their objection changing as the, as the time progresses. You know, they've been calling into question whether or not he's going to do miracles. And then they abandon that. Yep, it looks like it's going to happen. Not questioning that anymore. So then they start to undermine his intelligence. They figure, well, we can trick him. We can use the law against him. We're going to make him look like a fool. And people are going to see through, right through him as he does that. And that doesn't happen because he's too smart for them. He outmaneuvers them there as well. And so now they've regressed or they've progressed, whichever which way you want to look at. They've moved to the whole idea of what we're going to do now is we're just going to impugn his power and where he gets it from. We're going to call into question how it is that he's got this power. And so, in so doing, they're going to try and discredit him. They're going to try and suppress him. They're going to try and draw away from him. Quelch this movement of his. So note verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Okay, note here also that these are the muckamucks from Jerusalem. These are, these are the, the religious head honchos that have come out from corporate, from head office. This isn't just the local scribes anymore. This isn't just the local teachers. This is the big guys that have heard about what's going on and they're concerned. And so they send out an envoy out to the territories to sort this stuff out. Let's get this thing Settled, put to bed. And they accuse Jesus of being possessed by the prince of demons, undermine his authority. To which Jesus just deftly points out the ludicrousy of their, of their argument. He says that if Satan opposes himself, he ends up defeating himself. It's logical. If Freeing the demon-possessed is his plan. Well, that's simply setting his own hostages free. He's undermining what he's already accomplished. Doesn't make sense. That whole strategy is going to fail miserably. The whole thing is going to come down. Which is fairly straightforward and logical. But note here, on the heels of that, something that's so important. Because they have accused him, because they've accused Jesus of being possessed by an unclean, impure spirit, which is to say by evil, Jesus makes an extremely important point. Verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus comes along and says, all things can be forgiven save one thing. And that is when someone denies or slanders or impugns the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit, namely being revealing and, and enabling us to understand the truth. So when we deny the Holy Spirit in His work of revealing Jesus as God, and when we deny His work in revealing to us what it means and what is required of us to follow Jesus, and if in the course of our life we don't ever relent on that position, that we don't ever stop denying who Jesus is and denying what it means to follow Him, then we go into eternity without God's forgiveness and separated from Him because we have never acknowledged Him and asked for His forgiveness. Church family, friends, visitors, Don't miss that today. What Jesus is telling us is that we have limited opportunity to choose, to to decide, make the decision of who He is and to follow Him. That if in our lives, whenever that might end, we haven't come to that place where we've accepted and recognized Jesus as Lord and chosen to follow follow Him, then we go into eternity without Him. Unforgiven, having never asked for His forgiveness. That opportunity ends with us as our lives come to an end. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Don't take time to examine this. Dive in and figure it out. Now one more thing in this section. Note that at the beginning and then again at the end, it's talking about Jesus' family coming to collect him. Because they frankly thought he'd gone off his rocker. All of a sudden, things are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And it sort of makes sense. Like, we read it and we think, well, that's kind of harsh. They've all of a sudden thought he's gone nuts. But seemingly, like, for them in the space of a few weeks, Jesus has left home, he's moved out, he's taken off, he's likely left the family business, He started causing issues with the political powers that be and especially with the religious powers that be. He's picking fights. He's taken up with a motley crew, a bunch of ragtag muffins that just don't fit together. Who are they? Half of them are social outcasts. 
zealots and tax collectors. This doesn't make any sense. And he's causing waves to the point where there's beginning to be ripples now. People are starting to talk about having to get rid of him. There's, a, there's opposition that's growing at the same time as the interest is growing. And so they show up to get him, thinking we've got to go, we've got to go collect him. And it demonstrates to us that at this point, they're not all on page yet with what's going on. So they show up, and remember, it's crowded. They can't get in. Jesus is inside with his followers and with all these people. So they send word into him that, hey, we're here. Now, you, you've been here. You've experienced this, I'm sure. This is a little bit, it kind of calls to, to mind when, when mom shows up, right? When you're out somewhere, mom shows up, and you're not right there. So she doesn't see you, but she sends word. She says to your friend, yo, yo, go tell Doug his mother's here. Right? And, and we know what that means. When, you know, it used to happen, well, for, frankly, it still happens for me. If mom shows up, sends word that she's here, I know what the deal is. I'm coming right now. Right? The, the expectation is, is a mom's here, Jesus. I'm outside. Time for you to go. Come here. But what we see is startling in Jesus' response. It's so striking. It's not what we expect. I'm sure it's not what she expected, what his brothers expected. Verses 33 to 35, it says this. Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Here, these ones seated around me are my, mother's, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. All of a sudden, there's this huge paradigm shift. A significant change. Jesus is now identifying his family as those around him that are following him, whoever is following him, he now regards and recognizes as his family. The basis of his relationship with Mary and his brothers now had to change and had changed. We need to understand this. We need to recognize this. Their family ties, even their family ties on a natural level, no longer carried the day. Now, Mary and Jesus' brothers were on the same level as everyone else. No special treatment for them. They're the same as you and I today. All of us now have to begin to relate to Jesus on a spiritual level as the Son of God. He's now not just her boy. He's now not just my brother. Now Jesus is God. And He's calling for the question. He's calling for the decision. Will we relate to Him on that level? Will we make an adjustment in who we are to understand Him on that level? There would have been overtures as well. For the Jewish nation themselves, understanding that the Messiah doesn't, isn't just their entitlement. 
That just because he comes from the Jewish nation doesn't mean that they're in. But they, they have to make a decision just like everybody else. Just like you and I today. Lastly this morning, we're going to go to chapter 4 really quickly. And look at the parable of the sower. Now this morning again, this is another section we could spend weeks on. And so, not having that option, we're going to do a quick overview of the beginning and the end of this parable. And then, I'll look at the verses sandwiched in the middle, verses 10 to 13. It's one of the most, generally regarded as one of the most difficult passages in the gospel. Different ideas exist about all that Jesus is teaching here. All that Mark is writing about. And I would encourage you once again, check it out for yourself. Go home and make your own determination. And I'm going to give you, as best as I can, my understanding of it. So starting with verses 3 to 9, it says, listen. Jesus speaking, listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell among, along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. In this initial run-through, we see the emphasis on the sower. And we find that the sower is relentless in his sowing. He sows on the path. He sows on the rocky soil. He sows in the weedy soil. He sows in the good soil. He sows everywhere. And the question that we have to ask as we come out of this section here is, who do we understand the sower to be? Who do we understand this sower in this parable to represent? Is he just a farmer? Or is he God? Does the sower represent God? It won't come as any surprise this morning, I believe wholeheartedly, sincerely, completely, emphatically, that the sower represents Jesus sent to earth and sowing the good news of his gospel to mankind everywhere. On all types of soil. For everyone. Then, let's skip to Christ's explanation of the parable as he unpacks it later. In verses 14 to 20. Starting 14, verse 14. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the, world, where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, 
Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the, the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Notice now that the emphasis is on the hearer and speaks to us of discipleship. Jesus starts the parable at the beginning and he says, listen. And then at the end he says, those that have ears, let them hear. And he speaks to us on that level. Those that are listening, those that have ears to hear. The word, the gospel, falls on hard hearts, shallow hearts, cluttered hearts, and good hearts. The Greek tense used for, for hearing in the first three instances, or the first three categories, is indicative of those that first of all don't hear, and that then secondly give cursory attention, or listen thirdly, casually or superficially without effort or investment. Those that fall on hard hearts, shallow hearts, and cluttered hearts aren't really paying attention. They're not that interested. They're definitely not engaged. But the word that falls on the good heart is characterized by hearing that is continual and earnest. As Mark uses the Greek. According to verse 13 for Mark, what makes this parable stand out from others is that in his mind it holds the key to understanding all other parables. Which is to say that namely the proper understanding of who Jesus is and then secondly what true discipleship is contained in the parables. The parable explains who Jesus is. He's the sower. He's God. And it explains who we are to be as disciples. We're to be following, listening intently and earnestly to what he says and following him in it. So Mark says to us, when we correctly identify Jesus as God, that's the first dot. And when we recognize that in him we need to follow him, then we've recognized the second dot. And together as we connect the dots, we have saving faith. Saving faith is not just acknowledging Jesus is God. It starts there, but it ends with doing what He calls us to do. It's not just an admission of who God is. It's a decision that He's God and that I'm going to follow Him with my life. Which brings us then back to verses 10 to 12. When he was alone, the, tw the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. Note again, the twelve are there and the others around him. It's characteristic of what we just read earlier at the end of chapter 3. 
Those that were around him, following him, versus those that were on the outside. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So then, for those that are spiritually receptive and ready to hear, the secret, which is Jesus himself, has been given to you. And as you pursue him, you will grow in your understanding. For those not receptive or ready to listen, even though the secret, even though Jesus stands right in front of us and speaks to us, we see but don't perceive. And we hear but we don't understand. Otherwise, we might turn and be forgiven. As we come to the communion table today, and I apologize for being late, can I ask you, where are you today? Where are you? Have you recognized, have you made the decision that Jesus Christ is God? And if so, are you listening for him in your life? Are you following closely after what he says? Doing the things that he calls us to. Setting the priorities that he gives for us. And accomplishing them as he guides and directs us. Communion is that time that we take regularly. Where we take stock of that. Where we acknowledge Christ is God. And as we reflect on our lives about where we're at in our discipleship, what kind of soil are we this, of late? Have we been listening? Are we following? Father, this morning, I stop and acknowledge you as God. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here would come to that point where they would as well. Lord, I thank you for your body broken for us, your blood shed on our behalf so that we could have the forgiveness of sin, that which stands between us in a renewed relationship with you, our sin. And the penalty required, thank you that in your willingness, you came to solve that problem for us. I pray, God, that as we are here today, that we might now examine ourselves and where we are are at in following you and that we might choose because of what you've done for us that we would choose to follow you even more closely even more hard carefully all for Jesus sake that we would be able to testify to a needy world around us as to who he is and what he's done and I ask all of this now in his name and for his sake alone amen have a really good week We'll see you next Sunday.